This week's show is brought to you by Horizon Books in Capitol Hill, serving Seattle book lovers for 47 years with one of the largest and finest used book collections in the city. Mention UpZones at the register this week for a 10% discount. Our sponsor is Horizon Books, and this is UpZones. You have to elect yourself, Jamie. Things are changing. Things are changing. You can't say it, but you know it's true. You elect yourself. Things are changing. You elect yourself. You elect yourself. Happy Monday, Seattle. Episode 12. 12 being a sacred number in this city, if I recall. Ah, it was a great weekend. Hope it was good for you. Saturday, actually, the weather kind of sucked, but yesterday was a good day to get a lot done. We have an interesting guest this week. I don't think there is a more relevant topic to Seattle than housing availability, and I mean that. That is one of the motivating factors for what we're doing. I don't think there's a more relevant topic to a standard American between the ages of about 15 and 50 than Facebook etiquette. It literally might be the most important issue in our society. That's terrible to say out loud. It doesn't mean I don't mean it. Anyway, I think our guest this week, Roger Valdez, you may know him because of Facebook. He can be interesting. Let me put it this way. I think he can be a Facebook troll. I said it. But that doesn't mean that his positions aren't important. You know, well, I'll say this much. Had the guy on the show. He was incredibly respectful, and I don't think I've spoken with anyone in my entire endeavor here so far who has a better understanding of how housing and cities have developed over the past century due to zoning, racism, capitalism, credit, infrastructure. I mean, he just, he gets it, man. He gets it really, really deep and and and, and really broad. Is he right? I mean, are his conclusions right? They're They're compelling. Are they right? I don't know. I don't know. But at least he's out there advocating. He's not advocating with just his heart, which is not enough when you're trying to run a city. You've got to have the head too. And uh, he's out there actually pushing. So while I do wish that he were a little nicer on some of the boards, and I, and I, I mean that, uh, I, I just think what he has to say is so important. And uh, so it, not much going on for me. I, I just want to take you to the interview. I think you all should decide for yourselves. Here he is, Roger Valdez. Somebody died and left a bunch of books on English history mm. that were, I mean, yeah, there were a lot of good things. So I would go up there and I would like look at this stuff and then I would buy a couple things and I'd think, no, I really don't need, I really don't need a book of Gilray caricatures of George the Third, but well, maybe I'll get it. You know? <laughs> I mean, if it's what you like, <laughs> yeah, I do woodworking, and I I just bought a two hundred dollar router for no reason. Yeah, so. well, it's, you know, it's better than buying a gun, I guess. Oh, yeah, no. I agree. Are we it's, it's, are we live here? Are we good? It's a we're safe going? hobby. Brendan, we're we're hot on the mic. Yeah, all working. We're, we're going. We're good. Okay. Um, I'm here with Roger Valdez. Thanks for coming out. Oh, oh, great to be here. Yeah. So you grew up here? No, here. I grew up in Albuquerque, New Mexico. Oh, okay. Yeah. And I moved up here to go to school at the University of Puget Sound in like 1987. So I've been here most of my life. Very different 
um, space constraints in New Mexico versus Seattle. Yeah, and and I've I've written about how when I grew up, um, it was a very horizontally oriented world, where you know it was flat, and the only thing that was really vertical was you know the odd tree here and there, and then the mountains, the Sandia Mountains, and so my friends and I felt a, an attraction. To verticality, I think anything that stood up that was taller than uh, tree was kind of an unusual thing. And so when I grew up, we kind of used to take the city bus down to downtown or this, this place is in called, Mexico. Yeah, in yeah. Albuquerque, this place called Knob Hill, and wasn't very dense. It wasn't very like wasn't a skyscrapers, but it was. We we felt drawn to verticality of downtown and of sure stuff it's like it's what's up. I mean, here we are basically in the basement of Numos, and I just walked past right the street busker and a mm-hmm. bunch of teenagers that are far hipper than I'll ever be smoking a joint and <laughs> yeah. seventeen restaurants. I, I know the feeling. Yeah, no, well. I mean it was everything was spread out there and far apart from each other, and and there was something about the you know, everything being close together and 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 vertical that was appealing so uh, I think that played into falling in love with this area because it had the trees and yeah. the city and all that right well that's funny just because I remember going to see a stand-up comic once mm-hmm. who talked a little bit about he, he picked an accountant in the audience and he's like what the hell made you go into accounting were you just in the library and the wind blew your hair and, <laughs> and, it, and it speaks to I think you're what you're doing right which is a very density oriented yeah um, cities have always been appealing to me in contrast to wide open spaces like you know i've I've always felt more comfortable in the middle of a bunch of buildings than than in the desert Mm -hmm. yeah for me i don't mind the desert it's the stuff in between Mm -hmm. it's that that one story suburban strip mall yeah it's like the worst of both worlds (laughs) it really is it really is so you grew up in in albuquerque Mm -hmm. parents together they divorced when i was really young and uh, my dad actually lives up here now but my mom's still in new mexico so okay uh, I'm an only child, which is another kind of weird thing. Yeah. Well, in Latino families. Yeah. My, we're, we're three. We're three yeah, my family. parents both came from families that had like nine kids each. Yeah, yeah so. my mom has seven brothers. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I got you. Uh, that was a great place to grow up, I'm sure. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it was It was a great place to grow up, yeah. I mean, in many ways. Um, it's a magical place. I don't as, see it as much as people that aren't, aren't you know, that go visit. Mm-hmm. But it is a beautiful place. Majored in philosophy and minored in religion. Okay. Yeah. Preparing you for a life in developing and <laughs> urban planning, right? right. <laughs> yeah, it was a it was a, a turn later into politics and things like that when I got back up here. People are often surprised to know I was a delegate for Jerry Brown to the 1992 convention. Wow. Okay. Yeah. What was the name of the? I believe that year there was a there was another guy who was running uh, out of. Uh, Massachusetts, right? Songus. Paul Songus, yeah. He was the hard choices guy. Yeah, he was. The, it was Songus, Clinton. Um, there were a couple of other people that faded out, but Jerry Brown, like, fought all the way to the convention, right. and I liked his. Uh, you know, I just liked the way he was, kind of an outsider, renegade guy. Um, and yeah, so that was my first kind of active political thing that I did, and then I came back up here. And got involved in campaigns, and that's kind of led me more to the public policy stuff that I ended up doing. Got you. You work in mayor campaigns here or city council stuff? Um, I actually managed Peter Steinbrook's campaign for mayor in 1997. Mm-hmm. He actually ran for mayor initially and then switched yeah. to council. Um, most people don't remember that. but no, I don't. He started out to be a 
he was running for mayor. Um, and then, yeah, so I did, I did, did, I worked in city council campaigns, statewide initiative campaigns, legislative campaigns. Um, what else? Yeah, a lot of political stuff mixed in there over the, mostly in the 90s. Mm -hmm. And how, I mean, it must be that things have changed here, right, in terms of even what's being talked about. Right. So what was being what was it that you were focusing most of your time and attention on in 97 that's not even on the menu right now? Well, neighborhood planning was big, you know, in the 90s. And I've said this before, like people and I was a neighborhood activist, too. I got involved in Beacon Hill and South Park in the South End. And we had a real, you know, we were really critical of the city for not investing in the South End. I mean, a lot some of those things are still consistent. You know, Beacon Hill and South Park were. Any anything south of the Ship Canal felt like stepchildren. You know, like we were, you know, West Seattle, Rainier Valley. There was a sentiment at that time that we were getting the short end of the stick from the city's resources. You know, mm -hmm. we, we got uh, at the time people argued we got a disproportionate share of social service. You know, nonprofits and halfway houses and that kind of stuff, and very little infrastructure investment. That was the rap at the time. Uh, Anyway, I think then people were kind of fighting for things, and you had your you could kind of go to a neighborhood meeting, and as people walked up, I could you you know if we were sitting there, I could say, well, here comes the tree guy, here comes the parks lady, <laughs> yeah. here comes the library couple that are you know here comes the school person. People kind of were fired up about these particular issues, and then what neighborhood planning and neighborhood um, the way that Department of Neighborhoods sort of tried to organize things was we came together around planning for the neighborhood to accommodate and welcome growth. Right. And everybody brought their kind of axe to grind, you know, if it was schools or trees or whatever. But it was all kind of couched in how do we accommodate the growth that's coming in a way that satisfies everyone but also that leverages that growth to get the stuff that those people wanted. So if it was if it was trees, it was like, well, you know, as long as we're growing, put trees on the list. We, we need more street trees. Or, you know, our school doesn't have a gym. You know, put us on the list. We need a next levy round. We should be number one to get a, a new gym. And that was the way things were. And it would get contentious, but it was more like, it, it was more about like, you know, damn it, no one's paying attention to paving the potholes on this one important street. <laughs> right, that's know? still a problem. I mean, it's still a problem. Yeah. But it, but like it wasn't, and in today's world, it feels like the dominant thing is, uh, we don't want this, we don't want that, stop mm -hmm. this, stop mm -hmm. that, make this go away, you know, um, and it, it was a different world in those days. That That's way. interesting. I'd love to double click on that a little. It sounds, you know, I, I got here five, six years ago, so mm -hmm. I'm, I'm in one, and I've talked about this in, in several other episodes, in one way of looking at the world, I'm kind of like gentrifier central, right? right. I came here, a newcomer, yeah. I came here for a nice job and, mm -hmm, you know, all that. Mm -hmm. um, but another, in another sense, it's funny, having left a place back in New York that is, you know, having grown up in a neighborhood that nobody wanted to live in, and now it's being gentrified, right? Yeah. So I, I see what that, that phenomenon is almost in, in no way a personal phenomenon. It's a, it's a cultural phenomenon. It's a planning or lack thereof phenomenon. Mm -hmm, and mm -hmm. so I, I'm just curious, when do you think that switch happened where, where maybe it's that, that so much growth had happened that, that people just got pissed off? Or, yeah, this is where I was trying to write a longer history of all this, and I just kind of got distracted by other stuff. But it really happened when 
the 2001 election happened, there was a, a lot of turmoil in the town. You had WTO in 1999. Oh, yeah, yeah. You had, you know, terrorism threats in 2000 for the Millennium Celebration thing. Then you had an earthquake in 2001. Um, and then you had riots at Pioneer Square where this kid got killed. And then you had 9-11. And all of this stuff kind of combined. And then we, uh, the people voted for Nick, Greg Nichols and threw out Paul Schell. Right. And the first thing that Greg Nichols did was fire Jim Deers, who was the head of the Department of Neighborhoods what was did, that was in charge of all this neighborhood stuff. And I describe it as like in Iraq when... We went over there. Got rid of the bath got, party. We got, we got rid of uh, Saddam and and said, hey, everyone, you know, just go on home. And people just wandered right. back to their villages and took their guns with them. And years later, we had ISIS and, and, and right. the, you know, all the terrorism that happened there. And I, I compare that to what happened in 2001. All these people were cranked up about neighborhood planning. And it was like Nichols just said, nothing to see here. It's over. And they kind of just shut it all down. And then, of course, you had an economic downturn. And so for about seven years, the town, you know, it was it was not a hot market. It was not like the craziness that it is now at all. There were development projects here and there that were controversial. But Nichols was very efficient. Um, the city was run very, very well. Nichols came up with the pothole rangers that would go out and you'd mm. call up. And they'd come up with the truck and they'd fill the pothole and drive on to the next pothole. And it was a very efficiently well-run administration in contrast to Paul Schell's that was a little bit improvisational and more in the heart than the head. And then you had the 2008 crash. And I think what happened there is you had the Occupy Wall Street movement and then the student loan thing that was going on, the anger over that. You had a lot of people see their property values just plummet. So this investment that they had was suddenly... Yeah, not worth anything. The right? student loan thing, just to to mm-hmm. touch on that, that was big here. Was that big. was just before I got here, yeah, and that was, was man, that was it, yeah, it was huge here. I mean, and that that meant that right up the street at at S- S- Seattle Central was the Occupy Seattle camp, mm-hmm. and that was a area of foment. And so what you saw was angry middle class, older white people that saw their values drop, combining with students that that had loan issues, combined with anti-capitalist, you know, capitalism is failing people. And that kind of foment in 2008 really sparked the the 15 thing with with Sawant. It sparked kind of people opening up the socialism ideas again, saying, well, yeah, we need to... Uh, people were st- people were no longer embarrassed to say I'm a socialist. You know, right. it, it it the whole capitalist thing seemed to be on the razor's edge in eight, nine, and ten. And then you know, with the recovery effort that was passed in 2010, and then the economy started coming back, and you started seeing growth. And I think what happened was there was great suspicion about anything to do with real estate, great suspicion with banks, lending, development, and so all these single family people kind of ming yeah after mingling with this the, this kind of socialism stuff kind of went back into their communities and neighborhoods and were like we don't want anything to change you know right. we, we're suspicious of it we don't like it we saw what happened the last time we almost lost our homes and it, it just it it created this kind of uh, you know no nothing no growth 
pushback on all of this Amazon stuff that started moving back in 11, 12, 13, 14. And so you saw a tremendous pushback from single family neighbors. You saw that combined with a kind of anti-capitalist thing with with Shama Sawant. No one thought she was going to win in 2013. Yeah, I, I certainly didn't. I mean, I I predicted it. I told them, I feel it. I can feel the yeah. the anger I out there. I was wrong about her. I was yeah. wrong about Trump. But and, you know. and it was very much, you know, that year of 12 and 13. So you saw that whole movement transformed over a decade from something that was really genuine and grassroots into something that was really genuine and grassroots, but was motivated by anger and suspicion and hostility towards anything that looked like it was corporate or whatever. But the but the thing that was missing was anything underneath it to orient it and say, here's what we should be for. Yeah. Um, yeah. Other than 15 and other than... Well, 15, th- yeah, they were for 15, but yeah, I, I see but, what but you're that saying. Was, but that was... You know, that was really a genius political slash entertainer, uh, Shama Samant, just saying 15 now. I mean, that was it. It was a number. You could measure it. And it was simple. And everybody understood it. And whereas, you know, it took a long time to build up the neighborhood planning infrastructure and go through all the hassles to do that. And it was this very intense network of neighborhood planning people and neighborhood groups. And that just wasn't there to pick that up. And so what you had was these dislocated, angry neighbors combined with people that were poor and not doing as well as everybody else. And that all that aggrievement has become what we see reflected in the city council today, which is more rules, more regulations, more fees, more fines, more taxes to squeeze stuff out of the market to redistribute to people that are aggrieved and feel like they're not getting what they should. My listeners will know that you, you and I probably don't agree, see eye to eye on everything, right? I mean, it's just simply yeah. the nature of, of the personae that we create on Facebook. Yeah, and it's also just, you know, people have different views. Of That's the right. Yeah. But I love, I love that you advocate very consistently for, uh, you know, sort of market-oriented growth and, and your position, and I think it's hardly the only, you're hardly the only person that holds it, is that we're going to get there by lifting regulations generally. I wonder if you can give a little bit of insight into why it is that zoning, both both kinds, kind of the restrictive and inclusive, are such a, you know, wild hair up your ass, as, 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 as they say <laughs> down south. Say, yeah. um, so, you know, what is it about the, those really both types of zoning that that you find to be just so uh, toxic to growth and, and shared shared growth, right? That Right. Well, zoning is what I call a 20th century solution to a 19th century problem. So you had cities that were rapidly and improvisationally and spontaneously just blowing up like Chicago. And you had Upton Sinclair write The Jungle, in which he described the horrors of industrialization. And you had these incredible, you know, massive industrial uses like these power laundries down in South Lake Union that is now and to the Troy Laundry and the, mm-hmm. the other one that is now Stackhouse. And it was this incredibly toxic mix of chemicals and, you know, fire and steel and all these uses. And people were being harmed by that. And people's health was being harmed by the location of these things. And cities basically said, look, we got to segregate uses and push uses apart. So you're going to live over here and you're going to have your factory over here. It was a very r- rational thing to do in 1900, 1910, 20 when these laws were first being written. And then in the Euclid decision, it was it was affirmed by the court that cities could go in and say, 
you can build that there, but not this, and you can build that over there, but not this. And it became the way we did things. But what the problem with that segregation of use was that the automobile and the rise of, of credit, two really critical things. Before, people used to save up money and buy, you know, sell a hog and then go buy a freezer, right? Or loans for houses were very short-term loans that were paid back very quickly, so you, you had to have a lot of cash. When they created the federal system of backing up home loans, it meant that credit was a lot easier to get. And so people could do a 30-year mortgage and buy a brand-new three-bedroom home with a yard. And then you had the automobile, which was proliferating. Again, you could buy it on credit. And we created this fractional reserve economy where there was a lot of credit. And we fueled it and jobs. And it was beautiful in World War II. And wow. And you had segregated land use you know, zoning laws. And it was like, put all the housing over there, put work over here, put play over there. Right. And then connect Put school it, over here. Yeah, put school over here. And then connect it with <clears throat> these free, in you know, bunny ears, free highways connecting it all. And right. it's beautiful, right? Because I get in my car and I drive and it's efficient and gas is cheap and what the hell. And everyone's got a job because we're cranking all this out. Made perfect sense, but it was reinforced by zoning. And in today's world, we don't have huge factories like that anymore. We don't have the kinds of uses that where you live in a house with a pitched roof and drive to a box store to buy your groceries. I mean, some people do, but we realize that's not sustainable. Right. You know, it generates carbon emissions. It's not efficient use of, of, of scarce resources like land and fuel and heating and all that. For those of us with a more of what you know you might call a social justice bent to, uh-huh. I mean, there's evidence, right, that indicates that if you pull people who have the resources to move further out out of a city or a neighborhood. You lose educational fidelity for the people in the cities. You, it becomes more expensive to educate everyone, mm-hmm. actually. You even see increases in police brutality complaints, wh- whatever side anyone's on, on that debate, right? The complaints go up when the cops don't live in the city they police. Right, you're right. Um, that's right. I think that's a, a reasonable connection to draw, yeah. yeah. And just generally speaking, I mean, I think that there's a tendency to use that the tool that zoning could be. Mm-hmm. Like all tools, it can be used for a good or ill. And, and you see a lot of, uh, you know, uh, racially biased. And it, and it was. I mean, I, I think it, it, the, the financing of housing followed. Uh, I wrote a piece about the, I think it was a HELOC, which I can't remember what it stood for, but it was a, a lending organization or advisor organization that the federal government created. And it basically said, well, you know, this area over here, I don't think I would invest over there. It's got problems, broken windows, blah, blah, blah. And one of the things they listed was a lot of people, you know, that are kind of, you know, black and yeah. Mexican and yeah. stuff. And so, yeah. and, and they did it. And I, in kind of, you know, as I try to always do, put myself in their shoes, they were actually trying to identify that's not a great place to invest money if you want to get your money back. And it, and it wasn't, I don't think necessarily, that the racial component of it was sort of, it, it might have been, I'm not there, I wasn't there, but I think that purely from an economic standpoint, they were like, well, there's a lot of trouble over there. You might not yeah. want to put your money there and put it over here right. instead. That reinforced the, the racist, the institutional racism yeah. because the money wouldn't go there. So right. you wouldn't invest there. That's marginalization being built by pre-existing marginalization being baked in. And it, and so the, right, so the zoning followed that and the money followed that and the regulations followed that. And the regulation of zoning of land use brutally and horribly reinforced 
the banking system's decisions, which reinforced people's underlying racism and fear of other people. And it became redlining, and that's what drove land use decisions in many places over, you know, in the 40s and 50s, a time right after I just f talked about. And so you had this kind of stamp on the land in Seattle and and many places that were older that bore this racist kind of yeah. handprint which was don't invest in these certain areas and then we're going to draw these code lines around build a it. highway right, right down the right. middle yeah. and and infrastructure decisions were made that way and so now you know going into the 70s and 80s as things got better in terms of people's attitudes their enlightenment about issues related to race and, and society you still had this code that was underlying it sure. and sure. and so i think that it's reasonable to argue that the way that our city is organized bears the the stamp of that kind of institutional right. racism and, and economic injustice however you know so that's a big reason why zoning doesn't is bad but it also undermines the environmental principles which are you'd rather live in a like in capitol hill where you can take an elevator rather than a car go to a, a cafe, meet people there, and go to school six blocks away, take light rail to work someplace. In other words, you're not burning as much fuel, you're not consuming as much land, you're producing less carbon emissions per... per you're per, spending less time alone. And, well, and that's it. In and a that's bubble it. in your car. Right. I wrote a thing called Where Would Jesus Live, where I talked about the, <laughs> you know, the different reasons why cities can, were Can important. we post that? Yeah, no. Where Would Jesus Live was about, like, as a Christian, one of the things that I'm that I care about is, you know, how do I love my neighbor as myself? Well, you can't love your neighbor as yourself if your neighbor is 500 or 1,000 or 2,000 yards away. You never see that person. What cities do is they force you to see the other, to encounter other people, to deal with conflict, to deal with poverty, mm -hmm. to deal with wealth, mm -hmm. to deal with people that don't look like you. And you have to try to figure out how do I, what am I going to learn today when I walk down the street? Mm -hmm. And I think it it's deeply, I think, embedded in our culture as a positive. Mm -hmm. But I also think you also have to have discretion in a city. I talked about the, the urbanist creed, which I wrote a long time ago. You know, people in cities learn how to ignore certain things. Sometimes it's bad. You know, you ignore noises coming from next door because I don't want to get involved. But you also learn how to give people their space. You know, mm -hmm. on the bus, people don't talk to each other. Because it's kind of you still want to maintain your privacy even though you're with all these other people. So in a city, you learn how to engage with people, how to leave people alone, how to be close to people, but you know keep your bubble intact. So cities are an important evolutionary culturally, I think. And you know we we can't do that if we're not al allowed to build to that standard. Um, right. So that that speaks to the exclusionary zoning. You know, we mm -hmm. say you you can't build higher than four stories, or right. you can't put a grocery store here, which is something that I think you and I, uh, th again, I think we're fully in, in lockstep on that. I, it, but where I've never really been convinced one way or the other, but I think you've got a lot to say, is this inclusionary zoning, which says kind of you must, right? So if you're going to build this this massive new 400 unit building some percentage of it has to be right affordable. as a set aside and you know I, I i talk about the the thin slicers and the bake more people and the way i look at the world is you kind of fall into either camp you either you either see the world as a place where there's one pie and if there's more people you have to slice it thinner and thinner 
because if someone else has a bigger slice of the pie that's coming out of my share or the share of that guy over there that has no pie at all and you see someone that drives a really nice car and you go well he must have taken that money from somebody else and i think everybody kind of has this both of these things yeah. in them and i think the bake more pie is is the attitude of like we don't have enough let's make more let's let's produce more of whatever it is there's it's relevant in different times right, right. I mean, and it, and it depends you know you you say well we, do we really need more you know hot yoga studios well i i don't think i don't really care about that like i kind of <laughs> think we have enough yogurt stands but you know if that's what people want like make more of it you know and and housing's the same way and i i look at it and go if there's a big demand for housing and we allow producers to make more of it you're going to create an abundance of it it means that prices will stabilize and be rational and people will be able to get what they need they may not get exactly what they want but their marginal disutility will be less if we have more housing. The problem with inclusionary zoning is it's not a bake more attitude, it's a slice thinner. It assumes that if we let producers produce whatever they want as much as they want, that it's gonna stay expensive and there'll be a lot more of it for rich people and poor people will get nothing. In other words, yeah, sure, bake more pies, but only the wealthy will get the slices. And that view discounts the fact that there's competition. It, you know, When you create more of a product, People have more options to say, well, I'm not going to stay there. I'm going to go over there because there's something down the street that's priced a little bit more, but I like the, the, the landlord and they've got more amenities. And so the, the market view is if you create more of something, it's going to have a beneficial effect on price. And so in the long run, we're better off doing that. Now, that doesn't mean that there are people out there who are never or not anytime soon going to have the money to pay for rent even if we build a lot of market rate housing and then you want to subsidize those people now you may subsidize them by giving them money into their bank account right the or pure you, libertarian approach you, just you give them a give, give them a, a check, check. Give, yeah. them, yeah. give them cash because that's what they need and then some people are going to need dedicated housing but the people that would benefit most from inclusionary zoning like people that earn 60 percent of area median income the market can build that if we let it Mm -hmm. Can you? I don't want to get too wonky, right? Mm -hmm. But that's an interesting point that you just made, which is that there's a certain class of person, a class only in the most literal sense, just a, a group of Classification, people. Classification, yeah. Yeah, who would benefit most, and you're saying that it's at 60% of the median income, right? That's what they're so after. So this is yeah. not poverty. This is what an artist or a barista, if you will? Well, it depends. I mean, the whole thing, the whole argument behind the push of mandatory inclusionary zoning is one that assumes that that there's two tiers to the housing market. There's the market, and that'll never produce affordability for people that earn $50,000 a year, mm -hmm. you know, or $40,000, $50,000, which is at that level of go to work every day, I work hard, and I still can't make it, right? Mm -hmm. That's that level. You're not talking about someone that is on disability that, you know, can't work. Right. The, the fact is, is the market can produce housing in Seattle for those people if we let it. But if we're afraid of giving permits out and because someone's going to make too much money, and we don't let that happen, well then yeah, that person is never gonna be able to find anything that they're gonna be able to pay comfortably. They're always gonna be stretched thin. They have fewer dollars. And certainly someone that makes $18,000 a year yeah. is just never gonna make it, right? Yeah. So the problem is that if you conceive of the world as, a, as the market will never do what it's gonna do, let's tax it. 
it's a self-fulfilling prophecy. Sure. It never will make it. Right. And so you're going to have a market that's struggling, you know, to dig itself out of the regulatory overreach. And that $50,000, $55,000, they're going to qualify for subsidy. And then guess what? The more the market goes higher and higher because you're taxing it, it's going to be 60, 65, 70, 80,000. And a guy making $100,000 a year is going to qualify for a subsidy because the price of market rate housing is so high right. in the name yep. of making it more affordable. Yeah. I think we need a better way to measure it. We need a better way to look at the problem. And we need to help people that are poor with money, not programs or red tape or paperwork. Mm-hmm. Cash. Just you know, and do it. You know, Milton Friedman supported a negative income tax. Guaranteed basic income is another way to talk about it. Um, <laughs> and that maybe qualifies the first time Milton Friedman has been quoted on, on my yeah, podcast. Right. But that, but no, yeah, I mean, your point is, is valid. It, it, because Milton Friedman had the view that what we do, and if you're poor in this country, and you'll know this if you're listening to this and you're poor, you know how difficult it is to get help from the bureaucratic, state-run yep. yep. safety net. You know? It actually explains a lot of the frustration that poor folks, especially outside of cities, experience and, and often therefore vote toward, despite you know bureaucracies often being set up at least nominally or notionally to support them. But you know, I mean, I think if a standard, let's just call him a Trump voter. I don't want to mm-hmm. fetishize Trump, but let's you know that standard kind of pissed off Trump voter. If they met you know, the chief of staff to a congressman, they'd go, wow, that's an impressive person. He's working hard. He's, But the, it's the, the interactions they have are with people who are themselves given, given limited resources mm-hmm. and, you know, generally are, frankly, not at the highest levels of uh, education themselves. Or in, you don't need necessarily a Harvard education, but you need to get trained and you need to get that. And they don't. And then they're not empowered to deliver the thing that they're supposedly <laughs> delivering to the people. And it engenders a All lot right. of distrust. Well, there's nothing that will stoke racism like scarcity. When when you have you don't have enough of something, whether it's safety net or housing or jobs, that's when the you know the shit hits the fan mm-hmm. and people start to get you know all this tribalism starts to come up. But I, I say there are two really sad places in town. One of them is the place where you go get help if you're struggling with homelessness or whatever, and the and the permit counter at the city. Yeah, and the thing that they have in common is there's too much red tape, too much paperwork, and too many regulations. So the person that's saying, I got a dog, and I've got a girlfriend, and I need a place to stay tonight because we have no place to go. Oh, well, fill out all this paperwork, and by the way, you can't stay together. The homeless shelters are segregated by sex. You can't have an animal. You have to be up at 6 o'clock in the morning. If you want a case manager or something, help with some subsidy somewhere, you have to do this, do that. Who knows? You might even have to take a drug test. The level of bullshit nonsense that a person that's poor has to go through in this country to get help is absurd. If you're trying to build four townhouses, it's the same. So what City Hall and the City Council has done is, in the name of trying to solve these problems, has made it worse for poor people, worse for the people trying to build housing. So I you know, see what we're doing with all of these rules and regulations um, as getting in the way of spontaneous human solutions that I think that are, are available and out there for people if we just kind of get out of the way and let it happen. And then when people fall, you pick them up, right? Yeah. But you can't predict who's going to fall when and why and how they're going to fall. Yeah. I think another person you never have quoted on your show is uh, 
Hayek, who who I think wrote to serfdom. Yeah, and 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 he, you know, it, that seems kind of right wing when you think about it. But when you when you, what he's talking about is that it's this problem of knowledge. As a philosophy major, I you know I not an I'm not an economist. I never even took an economy class. But I like Hayek because he's a, he's a philosophical writer, and he wrote that the problem of knowledge is one that really bedevils economics because left-leaning socialist types of people want to look at data and make a prediction about what the problem is and how to solve it. And Hayek had the view that sometimes you don't know what the problem is until people have come up with a solution. And the tents and people living in tent cities, that's telling you their solution is telling you what the problem is. And what the problem is is an over-regulated social welfare system that is not meeting people where they are and they're choosing to come up with a spontaneous solution of living in tents mm -hmm. and so to me you know I'm a supporter of stopping the sweeps immediately stop it because these people have solved a problem we need to go and find out yeah which problem was it that they just solved and how can we leverage that into a better solution so you know that's those people are a market solution. They're showing you what a market does when it's got imperfections in it. Yeah, and that makes perfect sense. The idea of just streamlining the experience. If anything, if you want to make it hard for someone, make it hard for someone who has resources, right? Yeah, Not that you want to do that right. either, but right. Well, you what, so you know when you look, look at taxation, taxation does three things. It generates revenue for the things that market won't, market won't produce, like a big empty lot with playground equipment and grass. Right called a park like there's no market driver for that because it's very hard to make money at it and return the investment right. so you want parks so you you generate taxes to make that investment on behalf of the whole community it generates it redistributes wealth I mean you take money from one part of the economy and you you put it someplace else and then finally it incentivizes or disincentivizes behavior mm -hmm. so if you want people to earn a lot of money don't tax it you know don't don't put a bunch of yeah, sure. taxes yeah. on it because yeah. people will, you'll say, well, I, I don't think I want to earn that much because I'm going to have to pay almost half of it or more away. So I look at the way we should structure things and say, look, if you're poor, you should, you should be able to get cash. Have a bank account, boom, money. Because if you're poor, what you need is not a program, you need, need money. Right, you need right. money. Right, right. If you're addicted to something and you want to get off, you don't need a lecture, you need treatment. Right. Now. We gotta get denser, we've gotta build up. Um, so if you could if you could wave a magic wand and get this the populace of this city, especially th this nascent alliance of kind of newcomers and, and social justice activists who have the opportunity to work together. If you could get them to do one thing to get us denser, to get more uh, or more housing built, what would you advise one thing? God, you know, on, a, on the global thing, you know, kind of keying off what I was saying, I think having more trust in other people and not assuming that people who are running businesses, whether they're building housing, running a restaurant, are bad people. Yes, I agree with you. I think if we all had more trust, we'd get better results. But how do you tell uh, a dispossessed or a marginalized person, hey, you got to trust people more? 
Well, I mean, that's the same. That's the same thing that's true with people that are running businesses that don't that don't trust. I mean, what I tell people is, your pain is real. I mean, this is something I've been I was criticized for for you know talking about the data behind gentrification and mm. saying that the data doesn't support the idea that rich white people are moving into parts of the city and forcing out black people or people of color. Like the data doesn't support that narrative. But that doesn't mean that if that you're that there that there are really people out there suffering and angry and upset. I mean, that's a real thing, and their and their grievances are legitimate and real. So we can acknowledge those, but we can also say, what's the what is the best way to solve those problems? And what I would say to a person that's angry about their rent going up is, rent control is not going to solve that. That's going to happen down the road. What do you need today? You need two hundred dollars every month in your bank account, and you know you need. A sense of confidence that if you move, that you can find a place to live near the stuff you need to live next to. If we don't have more housing, that isn't going to happen. And the other thing government has to do is things are going to change. Mm-hmm. So you may be living one way today, and five years from now it may be different. And and our job as government is to make that transition predictable and and humane, um, not rapid, unpredictable, and violent. And I understand that people who are living and, and have their rent go up, you know, three times of what it is today, feel violently dislocated. There's, I mean, how could you not? I mean, that is what that is. Our solution is to say, you could have a place to go that's more comparable to what you were paying if we created more housing rather than Let's go after the corporate greedy people sure. and take money from them, because I just don't think that's going to solve the problem. Right. So it's a question of efficacy. I don't know. I mean, I I have a difficult time because I see our city council doing things like banning the use of criminal records to screen tenants, and I think that the nine individuals that are down there, um, you know, sometimes have very long arms so they can reach around and pat themselves on the back. Um, I, I know... <laughs> I don't pe- know where you're going with that one. <laughs> well, I know people that have come out of the prison system and getting rid of the box that says, you know, do, we, do you have a criminal record, is not going to solve very many people's problem because they still have bad credit, they still have bad tenancy history, they still have no job, they still have a job that doesn't pay that well. What What's needed is... it. To look at those problems and go, okay, you're in prison right now. You're getting out in six months. We're going to pre-screen you. We're going to identify a place you want to live. We're going to work with a landlord that's ready to to take you. We're going to develop a risk pool so that your deposit is backed up with something to offset the risk for the landlord. Mm. And we're going to work with your PO and your case manager. And if there's problems, the landlord knows who to call. Right. That's look. That's how you get people leveraged into success. I mean, that sounds positively progressive. <laughs> and, and, but, but you have to work to do that. Yeah. yeah. Going and passing a law that says, "Oh, you can't do that anymore," and then celebrating as if you've accomplished something is ridiculous. And so, I've taken the tenants' union to task on that and said, "I would. I'm willing to work with you. Let's identify landlords that are willing to take people with records. Let's identify people who have records who want to." improve their lives let's all get together come up with a program that offsets the risk so that people actually succeed and the human capital that they have is not wasted 
on them looking at a road to the future that's easier if they commit more crime than if they sure. do the right thing. Yeah, and, and, and our system is set up against people who are trying to make themselves better, whether they're trying to start a small business or whether they're trying to overcome a, a criminal record. We're not doing enough to say, let's make that easier. What we're doing is making it harder. And for me, that's, that, that's where I think all of these lines intersect. And we can do it, but we just have to work at it. It takes time to, you know, do that footwork to make sure people can, can have an opportunity. But, yeah, that's just me and my, uh, maybe I'm a Pollyanna in that way. Um, what do you got coming up? What, what are you guys doing? What, what do you want to point people's attention to? Well, we're working, <laughs> we're working you know, with, with the legislature right now to come up with some accountability structures for the, the development of nonprofit housing. I, I would like to see nonprofit developers get together with market rate developers to come together to identify ways to lower the cost of producing housing. Um, I think there's a lot of common cause that both of those folks have, whether it's Capitol Hill Housing Improvement or Plymouth or Lehigh and our guys that build apartments and small efficiency dwelling units. We have more common cause. If we lower the cost of market rate housing and we can find ways to lower the cost of, mar of nonprofit housing, uh, we can provide better subsidies for people that need them and fewer people that need them. And, and so that would be a common thing that I would love to see in the next six months us come around and rally around together. It's Right now it's very adversarial. You know, we're proposing legislation that, that audits and, and presses them to be more efficient and more accountable. Um, they don't like that. They're very mad. But I think the time will come when we get around a table and we go, how can we do this better? You know, how yeah. can we be more efficient so that the subsidies we do have go, go a longer way? Mm -hmm. More people get housing. Wait lists get shorter. Um, and more people can live in the city you know, together. So, Great. We like to end every show with a segment we call, If You Care About, You Should fill in the blanks if you care about housing prices you should support building more housing of all kinds for all people uh, in all neighborhoods of all levels of income roger valdez thank yeah. you so much for being yeah. on the show thanks for having me it's good it's great all right take care yeah so there you have it folks roger valdez of seattle for growth check him out at seattleforgrowth.org this has been upzones Sponsor was Horizon Books. Mentioned Upzones at the register for a 10% discount. Music by the Subcons. Opening poem sample courtesy of Anthony McPherson. Thanks to Abigail, Dave, Kamira, and Rod for reminding us that things are changing. Thanks to our producers, Brandon Naboo. I'm your host, Ian Martinez. This has been a Cascadia Underground production. See you next week. My favorite.